Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on Wisdom, a study through Proverbs. Last Sunday, we concluded our multi-month series in the book of Proverbs. And so Tim asked me to do one single message in between those, which is what I'll be doing today. It's going to be a reduction of uh, the six-part series that we're doing in Wednesday night right now. We're in the dead middle of it, and uh, it is about conflict uh, with God, uh, with neighbor, and with self. And so uh, if you ever heard me talk about CSM, uh, you'll recall that uh, we have three values. Uh, the whole goal of the thing is to create a culture of worship, belonging, and growth. Uh, which means uh, going to practice a right relationship with God, neighbor, and self. We get that idea from the great commandment, which says to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we believe that in public, what that looks like as an atmosphere is uh, having a culture or atmosphere of worship, belonging, and growth. And you would be greatly encouraged, I am greatly encouraged, by being in that place with uh, the way the students are. I mean, that culture really is happening. The atmosphere between the students is good. It's uh, one of belonging. It's one of love and trust. Um, and uh, it's like a greenhouse where growth just really, really happens. And so I couldn't do any of that without them. I'm very thankful to them. Uh, things are going really well. I'm very encouraged by it. Uh, but as you know, there is no perfect place. I mean, like stuff's going to come up. And so I realized uh, this last summer as we were launching into the new year, we're going to need to talk about conflict because the culture that we're in, um, that we bring inside that ministry with us, the uh, culture from the outside, uh, the expectation is that culture, obviously, or conflict has really negative connotations. Like whenever we think conflict, um, it's a fairly uncomfortable thing, particularly in church, because there's this really wrong and bad and counterproductive idea that Christians are just supposed to see eye to eye on every single thing all the time and get along all the time, right? And of course, this doesn't happen. People are surprised when the inevitable does happen. And so we've been walking through this to make it a bit culturally normal uh, to not be freaked out when inevitable conflict happens. And so uh, we repeat this all the time. It's the first point today. Conflict with God, with self, and with neighbor is inevitable. Like, there is no way that it's not going to happen. Um, we kind of know this. I mean, we know that in our heads somewhere. We need it to be in the front of our mind to where it just doesn't surprise us. And we're not uncomfortable or angry or disgusted uh, when it happens. Um, the, the same attitude that would have us be surprised by conflict would be an attitude that expects that when we leave church today and we drive to lunch or to the house, that we won't be stopped by a stoplight. We won't, we won't hit a red light. We won't get behind anybody slower than us. No one thinks that's gonna happen, right? I mean, those are examples of conflict, though. I mean, they're, they're things in place to keep us from actually having terrible conflict, the wreck, right? Um, and so we've gotta just get it to the front of our mind. Conflict isn't something that just happens between enemies. As obvious as this sounds, uh, you have conflict with people you love the most. And so we've asked the question to get their minds to this place. I mean, we'll ask the question, what's the difference between conflict with an enemy and a friend? Because it's absolutely going to happen in both. The goal is often opposite, meaning conflict can be happening for the sake of building trust in a relationship. Um, the reason that conflict becomes a problem basically is because human beings are selfish. Uh, if you're married, we should know this about ourselves at this point, that we are selfish. Uh, there's a preacher in Dallas uh, who says that the point of marriage is to teach you that you're selfish. Like, that's part of the goal of it. Uh, if you've had children, 
Um, you should also remember, I mean, as cute as they are, they tend to really be concerned with what they want, okay? Um, and so uh, we've, uh, we obviously have carried that with us a little bit more even to an adulthood. Christian maturity is beginning to let go of that. And we're going to talk about uh, what Jesus says or what Paul says about that in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I think that, uh, so, yeah, so selfishness is what makes conflict really bad, but I think that we have to get past the idea that if we were perfectly selfless and everybody was trying really hard, we would be able to avoid conflict. That's not the case either, right? And the reason I can say that, and this is in your notes, is that even Jesus, the most selfless, the most obedient, the most appropriate person in relationship with God the Father, who is also no shadow, no darkness in him, they conflict, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is absolutely dreading what he's heading towards, right? He knows he's about to get arrested, beaten, crucified. This is going to be terribly unpleasant. And I think it's really helpful to know he did not just ask God the Father if there was any other way they could do this, if, if, this, if this cup could pass for me, he says. Uh, he doesn't just ask once. He asks three different times, over and over and over again. And now that being said, he always finishes that request with the attitude of trust and obedience, uh, which says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, this is the thing that makes that conflict redemptive. And so we've got to get over this idea that conflict is immediately embarrassing or it's not the way it should be. I would say uh, that because we need to grow a lot, conflict is not a bug, like it's a feature. It's a part that comes along with, with this life. Uh, it's part of what the church is for, is to have a laboratory, a gym, in which we do conflict in a way where we get really good at it, right? Not where we're trying to dominate each other, but from where we really grow from it. This is the place we practice. Um, now, the good news is that Jesus' attitude is available to us. Jesus' attitude towards conflict is available to those who have dedicated their lives to being his student. That's what teachers are doing, is transferring their knowledge, their attitudes, that's one of the things Jesus is doing for us. Uh, Scott Sauls is a pastor in Tennessee, and he says that avoiding conflict all the time is cowardly. Savoring conflict is aggression. Redeeming conflict is Christian, right? And so we're not just talking about savoring conflict uh, between people. We're talking about watching it on TV, right? That is one of the biggest thrills in American entertainment is whether it's the bachelorette where they load them up full of alcohol and don't feed them and get them to like fight each other, okay? Or whether it's a news show talking about things that actually are really important and of substance, but engineering it so that two people who are obviously going to have a knockout fight on the air, I mean, it's entertainment, right? We live in a culture that savors conflict as a form of entertainment. Um, now, my question, what I'm interested in, is, is knowing how is it that Jesus was able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. And uh, the obvious answer is he's Jesus, right? He's God, he has an advantage there that we do not share, okay? However, being fully man, there's other things that we also do that he did. He slept, he ate, he prayed, and the attitude that he had is available to us. We can follow in his footsteps and in his mental processing and in his, uh, the, the way his values are organized. We are actually called to do that. So it, it's definitely possible. Uh, the reason um, that I'm talking about how Jesus could do it versus how we do it is because oftentimes uh, when it comes to conflict, there's two major styles. You've got attack and withdrawal. And, you know, you hide or you go after someone. With people, it may be even. With God, there's pretty much just one strategy that people have, and that is withdrawing. 
Nobody plans on attacking God if they actually believe in God. Uh, Dustin did the announcement video this week, and he said we're talking about conflicts with God, neighbor, and self on Sunday. He says, my advice to you is do not conflict with God because you will lose. And I thought, thank you, absolutely. I mean, we all agree on that. No one's disagreeing with that. Uh, and so what we often do is the absolute opposite, and that is certainly have a friendship with God enough to where we're on good terms with him, but also keep enough of a distance from God to where we could convince ourselves we're not actually sure if he really asked us to do a certain thing, right? I've discovered that uh, my little guy is three years old. He's running around all the time. I've noticed sometimes that uh, he's discovered that this works. I'm way less angry when I call his name a few times and he acts like he didn't hear me. And I'm not really sure if he did hear me or not, but it, like I follow through. But he's like, he's developed this, this strategy. It is a strategy that people who believe in God and even love God will often adopt. Uh, now, this uh, happens frequently enough uh, to where Dallas Willard has coined a term for this, and he calls it vampire Christianity. And what that looks like is we certainly value Jesus for his blood, right? I mean, we definitely want our sins to be forgiven. We know that's how that works. And so we certainly want a relationship with Jesus where his blood forgives our sin, but we're also going to keep of enough of a distance to where we don't, you know, obey him so much. And so um, we're kind of pale. We don't want to go into the sunlight and our teeth look weird. It doesn't actually happen if you're like that, all right? But uh, we, we enter that relationship where we're, we're certainly rescued from hell. I mean, we're rescued from eternal uh, separation from God, but we're also not really living at all, right? Um, now, C.S. Lewis said that there's two types of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and people to whom God says, okay, have it your way, right? And we all know that if your spouse says that, like it's not going to be a good time, you want to avoid that, it's certainly not good if God says it. And so Dustin's absolutely correct when he says, uh, if you conflict with God, you're going to lose. The exact same is if you're withdrawing from God while trying to keep enough of a relationship, we lose that way too. And Jesus warns us. I mean, he says, uh, if you want to save your life, if you want to run it your way, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for God's sake, that is, you surrender your will, you believe in everything with him more than you believe in your own power to take care of yourself and maximize the goodness of your life. If you lose your life for his sake, that's when you find it. Like when you give it over to God, your daily decisions, and we can start small. No one's trying to be a hero here. This definitely doesn't happen all at once, but getting on that path and progressively losing or investing your life uh, in, in God's life is how he really saves it. He makes something of it. Um, so the attitude that uh, Jesus had that allowed him to do this, the one that we're called to share, that it's possible for us to have because God takes care of us, is uh, found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And Paul is giving the church, which did not automatically get along back then either, uh, a formula for growing in sanctification, learning to be a student of Jesus, while also being a community that stands in a stark contrast uh, to the world that surrounds it, all right? And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If that itself was done, it would change our lives. I mean, we know that. I mean, that's, that's a tall order right there. This takes, that right there would take years of character transformation. But it would solve much of the problems on planet Earth if only that part was obeyed, right? This is how that would happen. Uh, to have this attitude among you or have this mind among you, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus tells his students, if you are going to be my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me. And oftentimes, we just don't really sit with that long enough to even ask what he could mean. But Dallas Willard says, it's the same thing as a calculus teacher saying, you're not going to be in my class. I'm not going to let you be a student in my class if you don't learn addition first. There's no way you could succeed at this. Like, you have not fulfilled the prerequisite. And for us, the prerequisite, it's not hazing. He's not challenging us, saying, I bet you won't take up your cross. He's not doing anything like that. He's saying, if you want to follow me, the single beginning requirement is that you surrender your will over to God because you just trust him more than you trust yourself. Dallas Willard says, it is impossible to trust Jesus without intending to obey him because uh, obedience is the form uh, that trust takes in Jesus. And he says, you could not say, I trust my mechanic, but not take his advice either. Assuming the money's in the bank and you plan on keeping the car and whatever, if it's not a part like that. But if you take, if you uh, trust someone who knows more than you about these things, you'll do what they say. Like, it's, it's, that's how trust is expressed. So uh, you may have heard Tim Cash say that when it comes to our spiritual growth, uh, there's three things we really need to be aware of. He says we need to be aware of our playthings, our playmates, and our playgrounds, right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, years ago, uh, had a similar idea uh, when he was talking about playgrounds. He doesn't call it that, uh, but he says uh, there's four mandates. There's four places of responsibility that humans dwell and are formed in. And so one would be the home, definitely. I mean, the way we are with our families forms us and forms them. The way we are at work forms us. The way we engage with fellow citizens, like as a society, like government, is the third mandate that Bonhoeffer talks about. And fourth is the church. And in the church, um, again, it's a place where we learn interactively how to do this stuff. And uh, so that Philippians chapter 2 attitude, uh, where we're considering each other more significant than ourselves, where we're having that attitude of total trust in God to the point where we would obey, even when it hurts, even when it's awkward, when it's embarrassing, when we feel like we're losing, that type of thing. Uh, that attitude allows us uh, to live in the community that is described in Matthew chapter 18. And so uh, if you've been in the church long, you've probably uh, heard of Matthew 18, and immediately you're thinking, uh, yeah, the confrontation part, right? You know, we're supposed to talk to the person first and then bring someone else. That is part of it. Uh, but Tim reminded me earlier this week that unless you have read the entire chapter, you don't catch the spirit of what it's trying uh, to accomplish, and it will be abused, right? You could just as easily use that, you know, talk to one person, then two people, then bring the person before the congregation as a three strikes, you're out kangaroo court situation, you know? We're trying to um, feel justified in dismissing someone entirely, right? But if you read chapter 18... Uh, it begins with the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, which always cracks me up. They've been with Jesus for a long time, and they do this a lot. They argue about who's the greatest. And Jesus responds uh, that the greatest in the kingdom is the one that humbles themselves. Another word for uh, humility is dependence. It's, it's really being truthful. It's admitting dependence on God, right? Not fooling ourselves and thinking anything we have uh, is because of our power alone, but, but God helping us. 
He says, uh, the picture he gives is of a child, someone who just trusts their parents. They just know they trust their parents. They don't wonder. They just absolutely rest in their trust of their parent. And so Jesus says, that's uh, the person who does that is the one that really flourishes in the kingdom. We're not talking about competing, you know, like we're going to one-up each other. We just learn not to do that, right? But he was saying the one that really flourishes the most, the one that gets this life, the one that uh, becomes uh, really healthy and is transformed is the one that gives as much dependence of themselves to God as possible, the way that a kid would. Um, and after that, after we begin to bring on that identity as child of God, um, then the next logical step is to welcome other children of God and treat them that way. So he's using language about kids. Um, I'm pretty sure, based on the context, that he's talking about other Christians, other people who have humbled themselves like kids and who are trusting Jesus. And so then he says the way we're going to treat them. The next session, he talks about welcoming people in Jesus' name. Obviously, there is a, there is a huge difference between the way uh, we welcome a little kid and a grown-up, right? If it's a kid, there's this sense of delight, first of all, right? I mean, they're fun, um, and they're in awe, and they just... Uh, so it, it changes the environment, first of all. It's a, it's a joyful thing when you see a kid. Secondly, you're really careful about where you're stepping, right? Because they tend to move around really quickly, okay? And so um, the next section after that talks about being very, very careful not to cause other people to stumble. And that's a hard one, for sure, because... Um, to some degree, we, I mean, we've learned we have to be responsible, right? I mean, uh, certain people just need to get over things is, is you know, to some degree. Um, this is the way we've learned to survive as a society. But Jesus is telling us, stop doing this thing where you're, you're basically saying, I get to do what I want. I get to say what I want. My desires are good, and everybody else can just learn to live with it. I mean, that's basically uh, what the American idea of freedom is, is that I can do whatever I want. And Paul ran into a situation where that's exactly what was going on. And uh, certain people were uh, doing some stuff that caused other people uh, to stumble, to, to feel like they were being betrayed. And Paul says, for the sake of your brother's weak conscience, um, give this thing up. Stop talking about your rights all the time and start focusing on the other person's development because that's how you're developed as well. I mean, like this, this sense of responsibility to each other and compassion. And so after that, Jesus tells uh, the story of uh, the shepherd that has 100 sheep, one goes missing, and he leaves the 99 to go get the one. And if you've not read the whole thing about how we're putting people's interest above our own and being humble, all of us are thinking, why did that stupid sheep go and get lost? I mean, that's totally irresponsible. When he gets back, we're going to kick him, right? This type of thing. And, uh, but Jesus says there is more rejoicing over the one sheep that was lost and came back than the 99 who did what they were supposed to. Good for them that they did what they were supposed to. They're healthy. We're concerned with the person who didn't have enough sense, right, to do the thing, who for whatever reason uh, got lost to, to, to really keep that compassion. Now, as we're uh, keeping that in mind, going and seeking something that's lost, having a one-person search party for the thing that has been lost, that's when we arrive at the Matthew 18 confrontation passage. Uh, we can put that up on the screen. Uh, but basically what Jesus says is that when your brother sins against you or offends you, uh, the first thing you do is to go talk to them about it. And I would say this is almost like a fact-finding mission, right? I mean, this is more questions than anything. I mean, because you shouldn't even be too sure about what's going on. It's very possible to misinterpret things. Uh, Kara talked about this passage on Wednesday night, and she said, what normally happens 
is we don't go to the one person. We go to the person most likely to agree with us, right? Because we felt like we've been offended. We want to know that we're not wrong. And so what happens in that situation is that our rightness or wrongness or the combination of our rightness and their wrongness, whatever, that doesn't change at all. But our confidence that we're totally justified goes through the roof, which is really dangerous, right? When the situation doesn't change, but our confidence raises uh, really quickly, that causes way more anger. The emotions get deeper. Then, you know, you interpret everything someone else does with that negative lens that has been developed. It's the beginning of a really serious trap. Well, anyway, Jesus says, talk to them first. That's the only way you can actually know what was going on anyway, right? So do that. And then secondly, if they don't listen, they put up a wall um, or whatever, then you go and find someone uh, who's not necessarily going to take your side, right? I mean, we're not talking about ganging up on people. We're talking about really a rescue here, right? A, a rescue of the relationship. Find someone who's well-balanced, objective. Go talk to them. If that doesn't work and they're putting up all these walls still, uh, talk to the entire congregation about it. And uh, after that, if they shut themselves off to that and, you know, uh, reject your attempts after that, then he says you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector or someone who's just not in good relationship with God. Now, again, we could look at this as a way of feeling justified to cut people loose. This would totally violate everything about the spirit uh, that Jesus has, this compassion for people. Um, I think that that progression there, one person, two people, crowd, you know, they're lost, is the same method as a search party, right? You call your kid in for dinner, they don't, so you walk down the street and say, where are they? And then you start to get freaked out and go get someone to walk down the other side of the street, right? So two of you, and then after that, when you can't find the kid, if the two of you go in the different directions, haven't found it, you call the police, the authorities, a search party is sent out, the radios are used and everybody's on the lookout. And then finally, if long enough goes by, the person is a missing person, it's not that they're dismissed. It's not that you don't care. Their photo goes up at Walmart or the milk carton or whatever, right? Compassion is never gone at this point. Now, of course, uh, this, is, this is an uncomfortable passage. Uh, and that's the reason, I think, the single biggest reason why this happens very, very infrequently is because it is so culturally abnormal. I mean, it's like a really uh, uncomfortable thing to do this. And so what we'll normally do is just, I'll get over it, you know, and that doesn't, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes things worse. Either way, it's not obedient, right? So a chance for growth isn't happening. Uh, so there's just, I'm only going to list three little reasons uh, why this is difficult. And you need to come up with your own, you know, because it'll be person to person. But I think it's really helpful to ask the question, why is it that I am offended when someone else tells me that I offended them? Because that's, I think that's a major part of what we're afraid of in this. And that is when, if I tell someone they've offended me, that's going to offend them, right? Because that's what happens when anybody's ever done it to me. I think one of the reasons is uh, it's embarrassing, right? Automatically, uh, whether someone did intend to offend or whether they didn't, it's equally embarrassing. It may be even more of a shot at our ego if we didn't know, right? I mean, because that's, that's a different type of embarrassing. Uh, secondly, uh, almost every time someone has told us that we've offended them, we've interpreted it as some sort of power play, right? Where they're thinking, if, you know, if I owe them, then they get to decide what the payment is. Or if they get this record of them being right and me not being right, then they can feel like I need to do what they want me to do later on, right? Um, or 
Um, they're just wanting to sit in a moment of self-righteousness. Like, it's good for the ego to be critical of something, you know, to say, this is where the mistake is. And we're not going to give them the satisfaction of feeling right. There's a heck of a lot of reasons why this is uncomfortable. Uh, but what's supposed to be happening is when this happens, it's a, it can be. It really can be at some point, mainly for their benefit. So let's say that your little kid has this terrible habit, um, and it does drive you nuts, and it is embarrassing. But the reason you do talk to the kid about it and say, you've got to stop pushing people over or whatever it is they're doing, you say, it's not, it's not because it's embarrassing to me. It's because I want you to have friends. Like I really, and, and then you figure out how to deliver the message in a way that it's most likely to be received. And I think that's uh, the goal with this whole thing. And then finally, it could be that if someone tells us that they're offended, uh, we would feel like they're cheating, like they're not playing by the rules. Because we thought the rules was to suck it up and suppress all emotions forever until we just die someday, okay? Um, we might think that, <laughs> you want to talk about how you offended me. I've got a whole record that I've never told you because I thought that's what we weren't doing, right? And so uh, we can be disgusted with the omission. There's so many obstacles, and we'll need to figure out which are the ones that are actually difficult for us. And that's basically the pattern of most obedient, obedience to Jesus, is we're, we're generally not going to immediately accept his ideas, but we gotta figure out what is the belief that's keeping me from doing this? What's the emotion that's keeping me from doing this? And how could I have more trust in God and his commands than my feelings and, and my ideas? Um, now, right after this confrontation verse, uh, Peter, uh, I, he may be inspired, you know, by what Jesus is saying, and he may be moved by the compassion that's talked about in the shepherd that leaves uh, the 99, but Peter is, he's thinking he's on the same page with Jesus and says, so how many times should I forgive them? Like seven. And because it was normal at that point, the, the rabbis had decided, if you forgive your brother three times, like that's righteous. That's all that's required. Some people don't even do that. And so Peter not only doubles it, like he adds one and he's thinking, I'm definitely understanding this. Jesus immediately responds, not seven, 77 times. And immediately he goes into a story to justify and explain why this has to be the case. Um, he says that uh, the kingdom of God is like uh, a, a king who had servants. And somehow this one servant got himself into an amount of debt that's like impossible for us to imagine. Uh, the commentaries say that it's something like a billion dollars. I mean, this, this guy has messed up enough to where he owes a king a billion dollars. And um, at this point, you know, I'd consider finding someone to help me fake my own death or something, right? But that's not an option for him. Uh, the king knows where he is. He says, you're going to prison until you pay it back. And your wife and your kids are going to prison until you can pay it back. This is a, this is a crushing situation. So the, the servant immediately begs for mercy, and he says, I'll pay you back. Just don't do this, but I'll pay you back. The king then has mercy on the guy and says, it's forgiven, and, you know, he probably doesn't have a job anymore, but at least he's not, you know, in trouble like that. And so 20 minutes later, this guy who has just avoided life in prison, a, a debt that would last multiple lifetimes, his kids and his wife avoiding prison, sees a peer of his who owes him something like a thousand bucks, grabs him by the neck and says, where is it? Give it to me. And the guy says uh, exactly what the servant said to the king. That is, give me time and I'll pay you back. And that servant doesn't have any patience with the guy. He has no mercy with the guy. And he puts him in prison. 
And when that servant's peers on his team hear about this, they're outraged and they go tell the king what happened. And I'm, I'm thinking it's not even so much that they're angry as much as they're thinking, this guy is totally unpredictable. Like he can't be on our team. No one is safe if a person like this is around. And so uh, they tell the king and he says, you wicked servant, you did not show the same amount of mercy that I showed you. You will be in prison until you pay it back. Now, um, I think that when Jesus mentioned that 77 number, uh, the commentaries say that it would, it's probably a reference to something that happened in the Old Testament. And if Peter was really, really well acquainted with the scriptures, he probably would have heard this too. And that is, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, you know, the, the world goes really downhill really quickly after the fall of man happens. And uh, within one generation, Cain uh, kills his brother Abel. And uh, God curses him, and he says, um, you're going to wander. Like, the, the, the earth is not going to respond to you. He used to grow crops, and God's saying it's not going to work like that anymore. You have to wander. That's going to be your job now. And Cain says this punishment is too great to bear. Um, after he just killed someone, keep in mind, <laughs> the idea that wandering is not fitting. Um, he's kind of not thinking about things in a very uh, humble way, right? And he, uh, so God's, so Cain says, this is too much for me to bear. And he says, when I run into someone who knows who I am and what I did, they're going to kill me. And God's mercifully, God says, all right, I'm going to put a mark on you. And this will, people will know from this mark that whatever they do seven times will happen to them, right? I mean, revenge will be seven times what they do to you. And it's a deterrent. And so uh, Cain goes along and does his thing. And then generations later, uh, from Cain's line. So Cain's great, 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 great grandson's name is Lamech. And in Genesis chapter 4, it, it gives us this little moment where Lamech calls his two wives to him. And he says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. Which is to say, I am way more bad than most people know, right? I mean, it, we're talking like 11 times the deterrent that Cain had. Like, God does this for his protection. Lamech is seeking his own protection, his own significance, his own sense of worth by saying, when people insult me, they're in danger of their life, right? I mean, it's supposed to be this warning. And so when Peter hears this, I mean, he's thinking, I, I would hope, or I think what we're supposed to get from it is that not only... Are Christians supposed to not be Lamech, right? Instead of 77 times revenge, not only are we zero, it's the absolute opposite. Like, not only do we not hold grudges, but we've got grace for every single time it happens because we're getting that grace from God, right? Because we're wealthy in this. We're aware of the grace that's been shown us. Um, now, Stanley Auerbach gives a really interesting picture of this. Um, in that third point, and he says, Christians are teeming bundles of forgiveness just waiting to lay some on you, right? I mean, that is a picture of abundance, of you being well-resourced enough. I mean, part of the challenge is we think we can't possibly do that. How could I continue to do that? The other half of us isn't concerned about whether we have the resources to do that. The, the other, the prideful part of us, the part that's well-invested in a culture um, that's you know, revolving around pride is I would never want to do that sort of thing, right? Yes, we wouldn't unless 
we have the heart of God the Father who absolutely loves his kids because he is love and we're becoming more like him. Like when, when we don't have to worry about our own pride anymore, like Jesus being in uh, the form of God but not feeling like that's something to be grasped all the time, not to show off his value at every moment, saying it's okay if I'm misunderstood, my mission is redemption, then there, our main concern is already out of the way, right? And then we've got this, uh, we're open to the resources of being able to seek other people's redemption. Now, um, I think uh, Lamech is the kind of guy that um, you wouldn't even just be scared of. You would honestly pity more than anything. Someone who says, someone struck me and I killed him. Like you, you'd say, oh, I don't want to hang out with you, but you'd also, you'd have pity on the guy. You'd say, this guy is headed for a padded cell real quick. I mean, this is someone who whatever punishment he's going to receive is nothing close to the horror of how his character is, right? And um, Jesus is leading us to become the kind of people who do uh, escape having character like this, right? Whose anger can be disproportionate to whatever offense has happened. So uh, Lamech and this unforgiving servant are two examples of someone who are just tremendously emotionally disordered, someone who doesn't value people at all, someone who sees themselves as the center of the universe, and when they're infringed upon, it's the worst thing. When they infringe on others, it's no big deal. I mean, that type of narcissism. And uh, now, that being said, most of us in here, when we hold grudges against other people, I mean, that's who we're being compared to in this case, right? Jesus is saying, um, if you don't forgive your neighbor, um, then... Uh, God won't forgive you. And while this can be really, really uncomfortable, we should be more uncomfortable about being the kind of person who wouldn't be able to have that grace, right? Uh, not the punishment for it so much as much as the horror of having the character that would not be able to do this. And so uh, if we are capable of holding grudges, right, against other people, when we have been forgiven as much as God has, I can almost promise you it's not because we're as emotionally disordered as Lamech or this unforgiving servant, someone who could hit someone with their car and not care and go to sleep at night, right? Not that level of horror, of corruption. For us, when we hold grudges with each other, it is, I think, way more likely that we simply have not understood the weight and the joy of our forgiveness. We've not dwelt enough, we haven't savored uh, the joy of our salvation. It's not that we don't care, it's that we haven't felt the weight of it, right? And so this is going to be the absolute key to every bit of your Christian joy, every bit of your trust in God, which is the key to obedience, is being able to really meditate on that and get in touch with the love of God that has already been given to you through forgiveness and everything else. And this is going to grow in two parts. One, uh, I think, would, would come through prayer and meditation. I mean, like actually asking God consistently, help me understand how joyful I should be. Not just that you've forgiven me, but that you've created me, the, the ways that you've loved me. Like, help me appreciate the blessing that I already have. Uh, this is basically a specific type of gratitude journal, right? I mean, they talk about how gratitude journals are so effective because all you're beginning to do is pay attention to what's already there. And then you become content, uh, you can become joyful after that. In this case, it would be praying, which is better than journaling, right? To actually ask God, help me understand what a big deal it is that you're paying attention to me. Help me believe it more deeply. Help it affect my character to the point where I can really accept that. And then secondly, after doing like the paperwork of it or the practice, then the way it really happens, the way we really begin to know the joy of our salvation um, embodied, right, is when experientially 
is when we actually run into a situation that's described in Matthew 18, like where forgiveness is important, right? Um, there's a big difference between knowing the answer and living the answer. It's a totally different type of knowledge. And so as this happens, it builds, it becomes easier. Our trust in God develops, it deepens, and things just, uh, they become more frequent. Uh, Dallas Willard says, this isn't a matter about, uh, of how hard it is to obey Jesus. He says, the goal is for it to become unbelievably easy for you to do it, right? Which is, in other words, freedom, right? Real freedom to, to love and uh, obey Jesus and, and serve the community. Thank you so much for watching the message today. We hope that this message inspired you and challenged you as you watched it. I encourage you to check out our website. It's thecrossloganville.org. There's a lot of information about our church there uh, that maybe can help you answer some questions about who we are. And don't forget that on our website, we have old messages and archived series. So you can spend a lot of time there learning and exploring. If you have any questions, you can contact us via the web or you could call us at the church, 770-554-3322. Thanks again for watching.